Hey guys, <laughs> welcome to Too Legit to QT, where you can get it done. I'm gonna do it this season. Get it done with Tish. Yes, and I change mine and become the best version of yourself with Koya. Oh, hold up, hold up. Hold yes, up. I changed it because I'm working on my branding and marketing and I changed it. And that's what it's about, becoming the best version of yourself. I already created a hashtag for this, so you gotta change it back. And it's it's it, it was a trendy no. hashtag. No, so I'm an ever evolving being, so I am in constant evolution. <laughs> I'm in constant evolution, so where you can become the best version of yourself. Welcome back to season three, guys. We are so excited today to talk with filmmaker Richard B. Pierre. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yay. So Richard, you have a new film titled An Uninvited Guest. I have it over here. An Uninvited Guest. Um, <laughs> and um, we just want to talk to you today. First off, congratulations on your wonderful accomplishment. That's It's amazing. You've won numerous of awards. You've been in tons of film festivals. So first off, congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so we just wanted to talk to you today and ask you what inspired you to become a filmmaker? Well, that's a pretty good question. Uh, I'll try to keep it short and sweet, but uh, I think I've always been a storyteller. Uh, I've been writing short stories since I think I was in like grade five. Mm. Um, and then at the end of high school, I started to like trying to figure out, you know, what am I supposed to do with my career and all that? And I was torn between going to business school and going to film school. Um, ultimately, film school obviously won out. Uh, I thought I was gonna be a cinematographer because I've always loved cameras and I still wanted to write and maybe write screenplays, but I wasn't like committed to being a, a director, like someone who was actually like orchestrating a film. Uh, and that didn't really happen until I started to work in the industry and I started to see that, at least in Canada, it was dominated by white men and I was just like, uh, the stories that were coming out of that were not necessarily stories that engaged me as much as I think they could. Uh, the people who were on screen didn't necessarily look like how I wanted them to look like. So that's when I changed my focus and decided that maybe if I was going to like be in this industry that I needed to be like a force for change, as it were, and start to tell stories that look a little different. Right. That's so interesting. You look like you could be a cinematographer, though. You definitely have that, like a DP. You have that DP vibe. Yeah. <laughs> why? Why thank you? Yeah, the mannerisms and everything. But I would, I would much rather be a cinematographer in so many ways. But yeah, cinematographers aren't really shaping who's on screen and the stories that get told. So yeah. you know what's what's very interesting too. You know what I I found is that you had a lot of you know, white males telling black stories. Um, and that's where, I, you know, I wanted to see changes. And, and uh, you know, all the stories that I've loved in the past, you will see that they had white directors who, you know, they did a great job, but it was never from the lens of a black person. So there was never those nuances that you would hope. There was always just kind of like an, I would say maybe an ideal, or like idealistically, this is how I saw it. And it was never really from just a real place of truth. Um, so it's it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, some of the greatest black movies in the past, you know, I look at them and I'm like, oh, that was a white director. Yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, interesting. It, it's interesting. Um, so or a it, white writer white writer for the help and there's always the white male gaze i mean even judas and the black messiah that was the first time that people were seeing a black director black writer and you were you're able to see a black story a black narrative told in the lens of have an overall like black gaze because there's always this this theme of like whiteness, seeing it in through a white lens. And people, like the feedback that I got from Judas and the Black Messiah was like, finally, a story told through our lens, by us, for us, and it's, you know, it's accurate. Because even The Help, The Help was written by a white lady. It was great, but it was written by a white lady. Um, and, 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 
And I mean, I definitely, um, you know, uh, like as a person who's part of like a bunch of organizations, I definitely commend allies, like people who want to really tell these stories. I think we're, we're just getting to a point where we just don't want to want them solely to tell these stories mm -hmm. because we want to be able to tell stories about white people as well and not feel like we can't tell those stories. So there's a mix, right? You can't be the only one. <laughs> yeah. Telling these stories. I mean, there, you know, um, there has to be like fairness across the board on how we get to tell our stories. Right. Right. And it's true. Like, there are so many great black films that don't actually involve any black people behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's 2021, and I say we're good. We're enough of that. Yeah. Now I want to see like 100% through and through. Right. And it seems like you were very intentional. We talk about that um, here on the show, um, putting yourself in a, intentionally putting yourself in a position of power to where you're the one making decisions for A, your life. Like you said, you didn't want to be put into a box where you're solely like a writer or solely a director. You wanted to really embrace being a multi-hyphenate creative. Um, and so I did notice, I checked on your uh, website, that you are from Oakland, California. If I'm from Richmond, California, <laughs> so we're both from the Bay Area. Um, and that leads me to our next question. Um, you talked about the difference and how you were seeing like white men in positions of power in Canada. How, how, how is filmmaking different in Canada versus in the US? Because I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't really compare because I haven't really worked in the film industry in the U.S. Uh, it seems to me to be kind of similar in terms of who you see. Like, I often go to, like, a production company's website just to see, you know, who's behind the scenes. And it's generally white faces looking back at me. Um, and I think that's the same across the board. Um, it does feel like there's a little bit more of a black film industry in the U.S. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know, like, you know, percentage wise what the difference is. Um, but, yeah, it does. It does feel like Canada as a whole is a lot less uh, populous with black people. And I mean, there's been lots of if you do like the research, there's been lots of immigration policies that were designed to keep black people out of Canada, even though I think in from history, we think of like Canada as like this safe place because of the Underground Railroad and all that, but there's lots of anti-Blackness here too. Oh, and nice. it's it's kind of surprising when you really start peeling back the layers to see what's going on. Hmm. That's so interesting. So um, like, I know a lot of people always want to film in like Vancouver and, and, and Toronto because they talk about the value. There's a lot of value in filming out there. I mean, the landscape in itself. And, um, you know, I have spoke, um, spoken to a lot of production companies out there. We're supposed to be filming out there, you know, and the, the interesting thing is I'd never really truly think that there is black people in Canada like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to front. Like I, I was just like, oh, this is primarily, you know, a Caucasian country. Like, but can you tell me a little bit more about the demographic of, of um, black people in Canada? Because that's what's really interesting mm -hmm. to me as well. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's clusters here and there uh, across Canada, but it, it is, I mean, it does feel like, and again, I don't know what I've done, like, demographic analysis, so I'm by no means an expert, but anecdotally, yeah, I mean, it does seem like this is a fairly white country still overall in its sort of approach to things. Uh, I think we are amazingly diverse at the same time, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, we deal with race in a different way, and for some strange reason, we think we're better at it than the U.S., but I think it's that we're better at covering it up than uh, the U.S. is. I think Americans are more open, in a way, to admitting racism, whereas Canada, I don't know that they're they're quite there yet in many ways, until, like, last year, and when the world just sort of blew up and everyone, everyone who was white woke up to reality. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Let's talk about that because your film, An Uninvited Guest, um, I look. I had the pleasure of watching some of your interviews, like I told you earlier, um, before we started. And you said that 
it was inspired by the 2015 um, deaths of multiple African-Americans. I remember that week. Um, it was a very, very, very heavy week. And you said that that inspired like your film. Um, you said that that inspired you to create your film about a dinner in the Twilight Zone by way of racial profiling and pro pro police brutality. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like how you felt and what really like ignited you to say, this is what I'm gonna do. This is how I'm gonna channel my creativity and create a film about police brutality and racial injustice. Yeah, I mean, it really was literally me sitting down. I think it was probably like the six o'clock news and it was one video in particular and I'm not gonna go into which one it was, but I, I just felt like they were just playing that video over and over again. And you know, you get to this point obviously mentally where, I mean, these images have been traumatic for years, maybe even since Emmett Till looking at that photograph, you know, who knows when this, I guess, collective trauma entered our, our consciousness, mm -hmm. but it's like that cumulative effect of watching these videos and definitely 2014, 2015, it just felt like it was reaching this like boiling point. Um, anyhow, so that one video in particular, I, I was eating dinner and I just felt like as a filmmaker, I needed to do something. Uh, I didn't know what it was, but basically I think it was probably the next day or the next week, I just sort of wrote in like a fever pitch and came up with this script. And from the time it, it came out of my head to the page, it didn't really change all that much. I just knew like this was the film I needed to make. And fortunately some arts council, the Ontario Arts Council here decided to give me money to actually make it. And uh, then uh, I guess the magic happened and, and I made the film, but uh, it was a very, psychologically draining process like just writing this movie like i forced myself to like watch these videos over and over again even more even though it was uh straining uh and throughout the process i just kept on reminding myself why i was making this film and i guess reliving these images in my head and it, it was was pretty heavy um and certainly not uh, a creative approach i'd recommend but it, uh, it seems to work and the film seems to be resonating. Hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting um, because you say that it's, it's such a heavy film and I'm sure that all those who were involved in it felt the same way as well. So how, how are you able to make sure that you had like a safe space for people to tell this story? Because it's such a heavy story and it has so many nuances and it, I, I definitely think that people, you know, probably even cringe a little at, at some of the subject matter. So how are you able to create that on set for, for the people who were involved? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was really just me trying to articulate how like serious this was uh, to the crew. But yeah, I, I don't know that, uh, I think if I had to do it again, I would probably have a therapist on site and I, I think that's in some ways it seems like it's a, an exaggeration and that's maybe too much. But for me at that time, like when I was making that film, like that two days on set, I was just, I don't know, I was, I was a bit of a zombie. Like it was, it was a lot. And mm -hmm. if only for me, like I probably needed someone there to be like, to help me deal with it. Um, but yeah, it was heavy. And uh, I don't know that I was prepared for how how heavy that material was in the context like because making a film is already stressful and hard and all that but i mean what i'm doing is like essentially like as a filmmaker i feel like i am the person responsible for killing a black person on screen and mm. for some reason that's not a small thing it's not like it's not a work of fiction even though it is it's just mm -hmm. like it's a weird reality to be in i think that's there's a twilight zone like behind the scenes as well as on screen I guess that's the, the best way I'd look at it. So if I was going to make a longer version, which people have approached me about, I think uh, I would have some help on, on site because it's heavy. Uh, I think it's heavy for the actors. I mean, no one ever came to me and said anything in particular, but it's heavy. Hmm. I'm sure. You know, we, I feel like our, our guests are literally inside of our heads because we had this conversation. Was it last week, Bestie? We literally had this conversation about <clears throat> 
filmmaking in the pandemic and how, you know, everybody has their own trauma, right? We have the trauma, the universal trauma of the pandemic. And then we all have our interpersonal trauma, um, depending upon where you fall in the layers of diversity, whether it's race, whether it's class. And then we have our interpersonal trauma with that involves like our families and what we're dealing with in our daily lives. And Tish and I were talking about that last week that we really feel like it's hard to create a safe space because people are working now in COVID and they're they're trying to work, they're trying to complete their jobs and execute their goals, but they're stressed out, they're nervous and there's really not any outlets for them. Um, and we were saying how we think that it would actually be very beneficial to have a therapist on set. Like there has to be a social responsibility for the people in charge, Tish is a line producer, um, and then, you know, executive producers, whoever is handling the money to make sure that you're creating that safe space. Because I think that as we usher into, um, as we usher out of lockdown, the pandemic, and we are the economy opens back up, we're, people are going to need help. People are not just going to be able to show up at work and say, I'm okay just because I have the vaccine. We have to like address that trauma. So it's very interesting that you say that. You're basically like confirming that what we said was correct. And, um, and hopefully when you do make your feature film, because we know that that's coming, <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll be able to provide a safe space and provide and maybe hopefully pioneer, like pioneer that having a therapist on set, because I just think it's needed. Um, I also think, um, speaking of that, I also think like outside of COVID, sometimes when you're coming out of place of trauma, right? Um, like it's it's a very traumatic, like uh, racial injustice is a very traumatic it's a, it's a very traumatic thing, you know, um, and you made your film a couple of years ago and the film came from a place of trauma, right? Of, it, of seeing these things and wanting to do something about it and having people having a common goal with you of wanting to, to create this body of work. But it also comes from, it also comes from the need and desire of, of, of wanting to get it out there. And, and some people are, you know, are experiencing or have experienced trauma similar to it, which is why they probably want to tell this story. So point blank, when you're coming out of place of trauma and you have heavy stories like this, I believe you need to be able to have a professional there who can help you kind of just <laughs> like just deal with deal with some of the subject matter. It's very hard. And I mean, I've been there. I've been on sets where I'm like looking around and I'm like, am I the only one who is experiencing like this feeling right now? Like of just like, it makes you somewhat feel, I, I felt helpless sometimes watching things. Like, I wish I could do something to change the story, you know? Um, so I, I, I definitely think, especially as we tell more black stories um, and we tell it from this lens, there, there definitely needs to be like a professional there who can kind of hone in on um, on the things that we're feeling because it's it's dramatic, man. <laughs> no, I I think it's I'm glad we had this conversation. Like you know, obviously, uh, the the filming aside, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know until this moment that I've actually even said that sort of out loud in terms of my thought process. Um, and certainly, yeah, for the next few films, like I love the I love the COVID point that you know there's so much so much of our anxiety has been brought up that I think probably everyone on set is going to be dealing with something. Mm -hmm. But even more so, if we're going to deal with like heavy subject matter, someone needs to be there to help people through it, or at least even just to be there physically to say like there is help close by if you need to just like decompress because these images are just kind of shocking and uh, it just, it brings up so much inside of all, each of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I just finished uh, hosting, emceeing a mental health summit. And one of the facts that they brought up, which I was completely unaware of, is they said that 20% African-Americans or just black, black people are 20% more likely to experience uh, psychological and mental distress because of racism. So when you're in the workplace and people are in a position of power, 
um, or you're trying to navigate your life in society because of racism, um, because we're naturally just treated a, treated a certain way because of our melanin association, we're always dealing with trauma. We're always working through. I think sometimes people as black people, we think, oh, we're just living, but no, there's still there still is a form of survival every day, like surviving the day, surviving that comment um, that you try to turn a blind eye to. Um, I thought that it was really interesting that you decided to make the film a silent film. Can you tell me a little bit about your like choice on choice to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, for some reasons, I'll. Uh... So for me, dialogue becomes like a bit of a crutch. Uh, I feel like a lot of filmmakers just rely on dialogue to tell stories. And I'm trying to remember, there may have been a draft where there was some dialogue in the script, um, but it didn't feel like it was a necessary element. So I just decided to forego that. Uh, I know there was a version where I used um, sort of like the final words from uh, different people uh, who we all would know, like their their last words from those series of videos, 2014, 2015, as uh, as uh, from being articulated from the the other. Uh, I don't want to give away the film, but there was supposed to be like final words in the scripts that you would hear, but to me, it, it felt a bit uh, exploitive, uh, and honestly. It, in terms of even in terms of audio, it felt like it was just going to be like further traumatizing, and that's not necessarily what I wanted to go for. I mean, I think the film visually is already triggering enough that it didn't need another layer of hearing someone's dying words as a way to, I guess, sell the story, as it were. So I decided to not do that. But yeah, I, I felt that ultimately there weren't necessarily words that were going to make the story more impactful um, they would just be really like a distraction from the actual message of the movie it's interesting i um, work on a lot of shorts and they always want to extend out uh the shorts because they can't figure out a way to tell the story without so much dialogue it's like we need this dialogue in this scene to tell the story and i'm like well can't you just get to the point of the message that you want to put out there, you know? And that's what really shorts are. They're they're really like vignettes, you know, like, like you're telling um, vignettes, am I saying that? It's okay, don't. Like, anyways, go with it, go with it. Go again. Um, <laughs> they, they're, they're like that, they're like poetry, you know? You're, yeah. you're trying to really tell a poem in pictures. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think that if more people do do shorts without dialogue, they would probably win more awards, to be quite honest, because you're trying to really tell a story visually, basically. No one really needs to know what's coming out of the person's mouth. They really need to just see the image. Well, yeah, I think too, with like so much like film and television, if you look at it, so much of it has, I would say, inflated dialogue. I think ultimately we watch movies and film and any medium, it, it's it's supposed to be a visual medium. It's not supposed to be a dialogue medium. And we end up making uh, lightly filmed plays. And like, I don't want to make a lightly filmed play. I want to make sure. a movie. And a movie should be visual first and foremost. So, you know, if there are any writers in the crowd, I definitely would suggest try writing your script without any dialogue and then go back and write the dialogue. Hmm. I know there's a, there a Hitchcock quote, a quote that's something like that where he, he said that he would just basically, you know, come up with the idea and it would just be purely visual and then you would add the dialogue. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually that's a really good Well, when I, I watched the trailer and I actually thought that your choice to make it a silent film was symbolic, you know, with I can't breathe and whatnot. Every time, like with police brutality, there's always this symbolism of like, it's it, it boils down to like breathing. Like I can't breathe, either I'm anxious or, I mean, I don't wanna get too graphic, but you know, George Floyd, 
he couldn't breathe. Um, that moment of terror, I can't breathe. Um, and so I thought that the decision was symbolic because, I mean, that was it symbolic or was I mean, it, it, it was ultimately supposed to be. So like inside the house, like there was no real sound, like no one could em emit sound. Whereas outside, theoretically, that gentleman was supposed to be able to, but then I scrapped that in post-production. Okay. So there was going to be that level of giving a voice, at least outside of the house and then inside not. But ultimately, I, I just didn't think it was the right choice. Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay. That's really, that's really interesting. I actually think, you know, I, I, I will say, I think that's a stronger choice to be right. Honest. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I, I like the film to be subject to interpretation so that you can read it uh, any number of ways. Uh, I'm not to say that the way I see it is not necessarily the way you see it, and I think that's perfectly fine. I like a little bit of ambiguity. Um, um, I think that's needed whenever you're dealing with anything that has to do with like race or diversity. I just think that whenever you're just too distinct or matter of fact and you try to um, create you try to like impose your opinion as being the ultimate opinion or the ultimate fact. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it no, doesn't. I, it can't be heavy handed. It can't mm -hmm. be like, you know, text comes up on screen and says, this is how you're supposed to feel or something. Yeah. Right. Which That's is a bad a example. But, but you know, yeah. I, I, have a, I have a really, um, I get really, really frustrated when I read scripts, when people try to force feelings. Mm. Um, and I, I've, I've had this, actually had this conversation with people about like, when you're writing scripts, I wanna really see the story. I don't want you to try to tell me how to feel about the story. Um, as an audience member, I don't want to be told how to feel, you know, and if I do, I'll watch Hallmark because they'll tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Not Hallmark. Yeah, because they, you know, that's the stories that they tell. They tell you how to feel with Hallmark, Hallmark right? Um, but I, I definitely, when we're telling stories like this or when we're telling stories point blank, you know, and they do this a lot, especially with action movies as well. Yeah. Um, they tell you how to feel about the character. And that kind of just bothers me just a tad bit because I want to be able to look at this character and make my own choice about who they are in their actions. So well, you want to be engaged, right? You want to be, you don't want to be a passive recipient of a Michael Bay movie where it's just like, okay, I know, I know everything about this movie. I just takes 20 seconds and I, I can watch it and be like, okay, I know how I'm supposed to feel about the good guys, the bad guys. And exactly. this is a terrible movie, but wow, it's, Spectacular. <laughs> I love Michael Bay movies. They're just awesome. They're just such garbage. They, awesome they, garbage. they are what they are. They serve its purpose. You know, you have to have like your, you have to have your movies where you just show up and you just, just want to have a good time. And it just is what it is. You know, that's, you know, that's, a, that's most movies these days. There's no real creative risk being no. taken, except for you seeing it with a lot of black people. Jordan Peele, <laughs> you know, like a lot of a lot of black people are taking Lovecraft Country. I don't know if you've seen that, but it is amazing. Um, the creative risk that they've been taking, it's just been amazing. But so. would you say that, Bestie, would you say, though, that it's I feel like it they're taking that creative risk because they can and because they weren't able to really tell the stories that they wanted to tell. So they're going in this like unconventional, unconventional route. Like we talk about that all the time. Like why, why do I, like Shonda Rhimes had to re reimagine your favorite show, Bridgerton, um, in order, in order to, in order to create roles for black people to be seen in a certain way. But we had, we have to go that route because clearly we can't just do a rom-com. Like, you know, that's why I loved, um, what's that one film? Um, absolutely, maybe where they had like two Asian characters and they were the leads. And it's like, why can't two Asian Asian characters be the lead of the film? Why does it always have to be a white person? Like that that makes complete sense to me. And I'm not Asian, but I enjoyed that film immensely. <laughs> you know, why do we always have to? Be? Sometimes I think we do have like black people are always really good at finding creative ways to be seen, mm -hmm. to be heard, because that's the thing. That's that strength. That's that 
power, right? It's like, okay, um, my ancestors survived slavery. So if you think you're going to put me down, no, I'm going to find another way, okay? I just think that that is You better speak it. But I, you know, one thing that I will say is that streaming services are really taking the creative risk these days and they're, they're benefiting. Why do you think people keep subscribing to these services is because they know that when they go to the movies and they spend, well, if we ever get back movies, and they spend their $10 and they see it every three months, that's their one $10 ticket, but they can really see something just as big as the movies on their, at home, on their screens that take risks. It used to be like that in the night, I, 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 I said this recently, I remember watching movies in the 80s and 90s being like, who thought of this? Who thought of um, Edward Scissors' hands? Like who, who, who thought of that, right? Um, and thinking to myself, like, I wanna, I wanna do that. Mm. I wanna be able to take risks, like I wanna do that, right? Um, but I don't see that as much anymore. I see it on streaming a little, but, uh, no one, everybody wants to remake everything now. Yeah. No one really wants to do like the really crazy, risky, who thought of that type <laughs> film? And I love that. I love that. That's my. Well, Richard, um, <clears throat> you know, you made your film in 2015, but it was received in 2020. Um, I think that sometimes there has to be a shift to also with opportunity to where people can also receive uh, receive what you're doing. Um, I just I was looking at just the timeline of everything, and I was like, you know, I don't know if it's fate. I don't know what it is, but you were opportunity ready. We talk about being opportunity ready on the show. And even though I don't know if, you, of course you didn't know that there was gonna be a global pandemic. Of course you didn't know that racial injustice was going to be at an all time high and why people were going to say, hey, you know, I'm taking responsibility, um, ownership of my white privilege. But I just, I see a trend and you created something and then you were prepared when the market said, hey, we want more, uh, we want to tell more stories uh, that are diverse. We want we want to work with more, we want to see more biopic stories. Um, and your film has won all of these awards in 2020 when I think that the market needed it most. Um, how are you being like intentional as a multiracial film multiracial filmmaker in this season uh, for entertainment to really like receive you and receive this content? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely using this time to like obviously write more stories are that are in alignment, I guess, with the success of an uninvited guest. Um, and yeah, just, you know, putting myself out there, reaching out to um, like production companies and being like, hey, I have this hot short you should check out. And then maybe we can talk more about my other projects. So I am doing my best to capitalize on it, but uh, it's certainly not something I could have planned for at all. I mean, I finished the film January 2020. Uh, I think we did our final like color grade or whatever. And we premiered at the San Diego Black Film Festival, which was right at the end of January. Um, and then from there it was like silence because COVID hit. So a lot of things got thrown off. And then it started up again. And like the festivals were just like eating up the film. And yeah, I just I couldn't have really prepared for it. I mean, I tried to come up with a, a feature film script idea ahead of time, but like, I felt like the, the film itself felt so contained that I didn't know that there was necessarily a larger story. Mm -hmm. So now I'm in the process of sort of working back and trying to like build the feature length version while simultaneously coming up with new ideas that are in the same wheelhouse, but different. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that you had, I, I feel like there's something to say, the fact that you had something, because when we talk about opportunity readiness, and I, you know, I, I consult with a lot of artists, writers, directors, actors, um, and we talk about, like, how can we further our careers in this industry, all of us? Um, I started out, I had, like, somewhat of a project that helped me, and then, you know, it was just kind of like an ongoing thing afterwards, but one thing that I tell um, a lot of artists that I speak to, like you have to have something that says something about you, mm -hmm. right? Um, my manager, uh, when when he uh, submits me, he says, 
they want to know you. They want to know you. They want to understand your voice. And before I was like, well, look at my work. But no one wants to just look at my work anymore. They want to know who I am, what I stand for, what is the voice, what is my specific voice, and do I fit into the culture of what they're trying to do, right? So I think it's something to say about um, about your your short by itself that it says a lot about your voice. And that's what people want to know. Um, and I think that it's very distinctive and very clear who you are. If I was, as a producer, if I were just to not ever speak to you and I look at your body of work, I get a really good, a great idea of the work that you do for now, because it always is an evolving thing, right? It's never going to be the same. And I think that's really a great thing if you want more opportunities. That's what really opportunity ready means to me. Mm-hmm. So, well, kudos to you on being opportunity ready. <laughs> It, I don't know, it just accidentally happened. <laughs> not accidentally. Not <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's obviously a bit of intention there where you are, you should always be ready. And like, I think in, in many ways though, the pandemic kind of helps me be ready because I'll, I'll give you a little bit more story. I mean, so mid-pandemic, mid pen, mid I don't even know. Yeah. Midway through last year when stuff was going on, because obviously we're not even at the midway point yet. Uh, I realized that the whole film festival thing wasn't really working out for me in terms of like networking. So I started to like, I got into this film festival that was a great film festival for another uh, film from a documentary I made. And I was like, I'm just gonna reach out and cold email all these people who uh, are part of my Mm -hmm. fellow nominees. And I was like, I'm just gonna email them and say hi and say, hey, I wish we could have met at the festival, but I do this, let's talk. and. I got some decent meetings out of that. And it was just totally me just being like, I don't even know, like the uninvited guests hadn't really done anything yet in terms of the festivals. Um, But I had this documentary that was doing stuff. So I was like, all right, let's see if I can meet some new documentary contacts. Let's see if I can meet some fiction contacts and and go from there. And then I realized that this was working probably because it's a pandemic and people are on email. Mm -hmm. So then I just, expanded that and I was like, I'm gonna send some people the short film ahead of festivals and see what they think. And it did work out. So there was some intention there, but it, it was it was kind of accidental. It was because there was a that pandemic. Was super intentional, Richard. Uh, was, you know, highly intentional yeah yeah but you you know that that's seizing the opportunity and that's really really what it is and i think when we talk about opportunity opportunity readiness it's like not that you have this thing that's just ready waiting for an opportunity it's just knowing that man i have something maybe people will be interested in it right now because it seems like a really good time to really gauge these people let me just try it because you don't know i mean we live in the wild wild west out here in filmmaking we just don't know how people are going to receive the films that we have but we can be intentional about how we reach out to people and say hey i've created this body of work and hope and pray that we've done a great job at at the message that we have in our films so i think just the reach out by itself is very intentional. It's mm-hmm. very intentional. And I will say what makes it even better is the fact that you actually had some good work. <laughs> you know, like it's not like you're, it's not like you're like, uh, just uh look at this thing that I just put on my put up against my face and you know, it just works and I'm a filmmaker. Like it was very well, intentional. Well, I must say that I did look at your website and I saw all of the shorts that you made, all of the films. And just for all of you listening and watching, Richard is being very modest. Um, There's like 24 uh, shorts underneath his film tab. Yes, Richard, let's get into it. Way too many shorts. 40, there's like 40 film, 40 commercials, Coca-Cola, Leapfrog. So Richard, you're a hustler, you're working. Um, He does films, he does commercials, he edits corporate videos, he edits commercials, he edits films. You're hustling, you're networking. And it seems like to me that maybe, maybe if you don't want to consider it technically being very intentional, 
I, what I, the difference between you and other people is I see that when you're experiencing your trauma, you find the motivation to put it in your work and you're hustling. You're just going, you're, you're, you're okay. I completed this, this short. Now I'm going to do this. Okay. This opera, this commercial came now. I'm, now I'm going to do that. And um, one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting. And I was curious about is you, uh, you were able to find funding for all of these things and you have a relationship with the, on the Ontario arts council. Yeah. Um, and you were able to secure funding for multiple projects. I know you've talked about that in your previous interviews. Um, how are you able, like what's your process for securing uh, funding and developing relationships? Because you talked a little bit about your networking, but I know filmmakers would love to know that. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about the funding first. I think the funding is, uh, it's hard. I mean, uh, so we, we're lucky in Canada, we have a bunch of different uh, arts councils. There's like three different levels of, of funding there. And it really is just a matter of applying and, you know, fingers crossed you get the grant. Obviously, you have to get great at writing grant applications. Um, but I think as, as an artist, as a creative person, uh, grant applications are a great uh, moment for you to figure out whether you should even be telling this story. Uh, whether you have the drive to, to do it, because the applications are generally not as short as I wish they were. They ask a lot of information and you got to really think about it and you have to sell, you have to sell your project, you have to sell yourself as an artist. So it's not easy. It's a lot of rejection. Um, but if you can get the money, it's a huge boost to the projects. Um, and then in terms of, I guess, the networking side of things, I'm not a great networker, and I know you're gonna like say that that's not true, but uh, for me, it's hard work. So like when, when we're in real life and I have to like be in a room and talk to people, I hate talking to strangers and trying to make small talk and figure out who you are and why you need to know me. Uh, I'm an introvert by nature, but yeah, I go to a networking event and I will, I will force myself to talk to people and I will try to follow up. But uh, the advice I would have for people out there is that uh, no matter how much you hate doing it, you obviously have to do it. Uh, I think right now is kind of a great time to network because no one's doing it physically anyhow. So you can just basically dial into like LinkedIn and say, film producers, I wanna talk to film producers. I'm gonna cold email these film producers. I'm gonna find their emails and I'm gonna just say, hi, I'm Richard. I'm a writer director. I'm really passionate about using genre to tell, I don't know, racially provocative films. Here's my latest short, uh, trigger warning. Uh, <laughs> let's talk after that if you aren't completely destroyed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, just going out there and, and doing that and it's like repeat, right? Like dig in. I figured like you can email the head of Sony Pictures tomorrow and they probably will not email you back but if they do, that's huge, right? If you want to talk to Drake, why not just DM Drake and see what happens? The worst thing that's going to happen is you'll get radio silence. Mm. It's so interesting. There was this one short that I saw on YouTube where this, uh, it was this young filmmaker. He was making this, I think he was really into doing special effects and he made his whole film, right? I think it took him like four years. And he reached out to Jude Law after he saw an edit, Jude Law, he he went all the way to to London and Jude Law did like one hour in his film, like literally just two words. And it was really interesting because Jude Law could have not got back to him, you know, but he saw his, he reached out. I'm not telling everybody to reach out to Jude Law, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that the work that he created was just so great that Jude Law couldn't even believe that he created the work. FYI, I'm gonna put something out there. UK talent, they're amazing as well. They are amazing and their managers are amazing and their agents are amazing and they're very receptive. So if you want to really reach out to, you know, get talent, you know, and you really wanna be ambitious, look for some UK talent because they're, they're really awesome. I'm just, from my experience. Richard is like, I'm repping Canada talent. No way. What are you talking about? I'm doing, I'm doing UK. That's the way to go. I'm, I'm taking his advice. This is I'm great advice. Saying, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they will get back to you. You know, here, CAA, WME, they just yeah. don't get Nothing. back to you. I will say this. It's really interesting. 
uh, Canadian production companies, Canadian uh, agents. Ooh, I shouldn't say this, but anyhow, it's too late. <laughs> they are a lot less receptive than Americans. Like I've found that I talked to like higher level, like American production companies versus Canadian. Like, and they'll, they'll get back to me like in, I don't know, I'll say 24 hours versus Canada. I can get like radio silence for months from people. It's the weirdest thing. I'm like, just say, just say, you know, message received or no, like no is fine. Like I'm used to no. No one wants to say no out here because they want to, like, I, I talk about this all the time. This is kind of like my thing about Hollywood because I'm not a Hollywood person. You know, I don't consider myself a Hollywood person, but no one wants to say no to you out here because they don't want to be the ones to say that they didn't believe in you just so they can, they can work with you later. So they'll just be like, oh, never got your message. Oh, really? Oh, well, let's do it later. And they'll just never get back to you. But at least let me tell you, when I reach out to the UK, they're just like, no. I'm I'm doing the UK all the way. They're like yes, or they're like it's 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 really interesting that, and I I've also had talent from um from from Japan. They're <laughs> I'm just saying the experience is just different. It's like they get they're back international. I love it. Yeah, they get back to you like really quickly. So, anyways, Richard, you should use you should look for some UK talent and see see who you can find. They're very like so many actors that I love from the UK. So I'm gonna do it. Totally. They don't play. Um, let's see. So you know, one thing that I want to ask, Richard, are you planning to come out here in the US at any point? Do you plan? <laughs> I, I gotta say, so how you guys handled the pandemic? I'm not uh, I'm not looking forward to going back to the US anytime soon. Oh, for four years i was just like oh my god so i still like i'm an american citizen i still vote in elections and uh yeah i mean it was it was hard watching that four years go down it's just like whoa what is what is going on and so much so much bad but yeah i mean uh, would i come back to the u.s it's it's a great question and i think when it comes to filmmaking, like if you're if you're serious about it, obviously LA is kind of the place to be. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that I can see myself living in in the states again. Um, it's possible. I mean, I wouldn't obviously take it off the table, but you know, if they're gonna give me a bag full of money and let me direct the next yeah, Voltron live action movie, then I'm probably gonna say okay. But <laughs> let them call you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll totally. let them call me. I'll let turn the call. Yeah. Like, let Hollywood come to you. Hollywood. If you're on opportunity, let Hollywood come to you. And they yeah. do. They do. When it's when you, when you create the right opportunity, they come knocking. Which well, yeah. so we'll, again, be, we'll be hearing. We'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, Out. building on like what we were just talking about. I mean, so it was uh, an American company was the first one to sort of reach out to me about an uninvited guest after it won at Holly Shorts, and they were just like, it was like the next day, and they're like, hey, let's talk, and I'm like. Yeah, let's talk. Let's totally like my first Hollywood meeting happened over a Zoom, mm. and uh, it was great. It was amazing. Amazing. That's mm. amazing. Well, well that I hope every, I hope everybody listening and watching that you catch this nugget because he basically confirmed everything that we are saying, which is create your own opportunity and just level up, and that Hollywood will come to you. It's that simple. <laughs> You know, so one other thing, because I know that we're getting very near to the, the end of the podcast, but I really want to encourage people out there in the pandemic right now who don't really feel like, you know, they'll, they'll be able to create opportunities or whatever. I really want to encourage them to still write to still push on, like this is only a moment in time. And, you know, Richard, it took you a couple of years to even get your short together. Just know that, and that, that's realistic. It takes like, I, I had a movie that just came out, what, two, from two and a half years ago? Mm -hmm. What was it, two or three years ago? Which one? I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality of filmmaking, right? If you wanna do it right, it takes time. So mm -hmm. what advice would you give um, filmmakers who are out there right now, Richard, who, feel discouraged because they don't know if they'll be able to make a film again or you know they just got out of film school and they're like man I just 
this is what what was my life was going to be like, right? After I, I I finished this, what would you say to those people who really want to continue filmmaking, but they're just at that that point of discouragement? Yeah, I mean, I think we've all been there, and you know, at the end of the day, like making a film, no matter how small and how simple it seems, it's a hard task for whatever the reason. It's never, no matter how easy you think it's going to be, it's a lot harder. Uh, and then to get it out in the world is not necessarily easy either. But uh, I would say take the resources you have in front of you and make a movie, like make a one minute movie um, with what you have right around you. Use your, your, uh, your whoever you're living with, make them a part of the film. Like use your limited resources to your advantage and use it to tell an interesting story. Um, because you have the tools all you have to do is try to figure out what that story is. And it has to be something that I think you're so passionate about that you uh, you will basically die to make the film. And you shouldn't obviously die to make the film. But, you know, really, it has to be something that really lights a fire inside of you. So write something that you're passionate about or have someone else write it if you're not a great writer. Um, and then try to make it as, I would say, you know, as visual as possible. I think. Again, I think visual storytelling is what filmmakers often forget, and they want to have two actors doing dialogue in a diner. And to me, that's just not a movie. I mean, some people can do that, and it's amazing because they have amazing actors or, you know, I don't know what. But to me, that's not much of a movie uh, a lot of the time. So make something that is visually awesome, mm -hmm. and then be realistic at the end and say to yourself, and maybe even show it to people who are in the industry, outside of the industry, and find out what they think. Because, you know, sometimes the movie you think is the next Jurassic Park is not. And that's okay. I mean, a lot of the time I think we wanna we wanna make great movies. And I think just making a movie is so hard in and of itself. Try to just make a movie. Don't worry about it necessarily being great. Um, be open to failure. Be open to the fact that you might make something that you killed you for two years mm. and it's not that good. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what's going to happen? You're going to make a better film next time. And if you don't, <laughs> I'm telling you, just do it again. Just keep on doing it. And eventually, you'll get better. Eventually, your films are going to get better. And you'll find your opportunity that way. But I would say, you know, ultimately, don't give up. Make a short film. Making short films, I think, is a great way to get your foot in the industry, especially when you can go to a company and say, again, email the guy who's the head of Sony or email Jude Law and say, Check out my three-minute film. It uh, it's really short and it's about A, B, C, D, and I think it would really appeal to you. And then we should talk because a three-minute movie is really easy for anyone to watch. If you make a twenty-five-minute short film, nothing wrong with those. It's harder to make me watch that. Like I love watching short content. I watch commercials. I watch short films, music videos all the time. But when, I, when the counter says more than four minutes, my brain says. Can I commit to this this long task? A 10-minute short film, a 15-minute short film, yes, but like a 25-minute short film, I'm like, really? This better be something damn great. So be short and sweet, and uh, unlike this dialogue that I'm doing right now, get to your point. No, I, I, you know, I think it's fantastic because also there, like, one thing that I feel that happens in Hollywood a lot is that everybody makes it seem like it's this magical process, right? Like, it's like, you're just going to make this film and it's going to be fantastic. And it's just going to win all these awards. And, but, but one thing that happens out there is that people really maximize and make money off of your dreams and your vision. And the reality is, is that the person who should be making money off your dream and your vision is you. You should be capitalizing off of that, however you can do that, right? So it's really great that you're saying like, just go out there and just do it. And a, and a good example of that, cause I'm an avid like indie filmmaker, like watching indie films, is a, it's a film called Krishna. I don't know if you guys oh, heard yeah. of it. You know Krishna? Mm -hmm. It was like his grandmother. You know what I'm talking about, Richard? Oh yeah, like, I know his, the one. I saw them yeah. seen the movie, but I know it. Yeah. Like it was like his grandmother, his parents, it was all in his home and it was a fantastic, that grandmother killed it. 
<laughs> like that, that grandmother really, she did her thing. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like, let me call my grandma. <laughs> because maybe she has some talent. I don't know about either. So um, yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. I, I think I think you're exactly right. Telling people just to go out there and just do it. I tell people that all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we get too focused on success. I mean, I think failure is something people just need to embrace. Like, you make a film. It's, it may be not, you know, 98% of the time, your film is not going to be good, right? I mean, if we think about the movies we watch, most of them aren't that great. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with failure. Fail, and eventually you will succeed, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I want to say to everyone out there, first and foremost, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for showing up. Usually at the end of the uh, episode, we have one question. I'm going to let Bessie ask that question. <laughs> well, you know, I thought about that. We ask everybody as an ending question. But one of the things that I think we're going to be a little bit flexible this season, because Everybody's just so unique. So, um, Richard, you talked about one thing that I see is that you have a very high level of emotional intelligence because you're like, just do it. I'm hearing that you're you're reframing your thoughts to actually propel you into action. But I think we're just going to keep it simple. Like, how do you stay motivated? Because you say, like, do something passion that you're passionate about that will ignite you to just get it done. But like. How do you stay motivated? Like, how do you get motivated to the point where you can do that? Boy, I mean, that's that's a big ending question. How do I stay motivated? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I feel like I, I have more of a mission as a creative person. If we go back to, I guess, an earlier question where it's like, how did you get into film? And I said I wanted to be a cinematographer. I think my motivation is really the thing that stops me from quitting, because I think quitting would be very easy and finding a job that paid me better. Um, the thing that keeps me going is I think our stories matter, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm the only person who can tell these stories, but until the industry, I think, reflects a greater level of diversity, then I'm, I'm forcing myself to go out there every day and, like, tell some stories and find other creative people to tell their stories because our stories really, really matter. And I think once you see yourself reflected on screen, it, it changes your perception of yourself. And obviously there's uh, the added benefit of changing perception between, say, the majority of the population and seeing how they view black people, for instance. Obviously your audience is very diverse and I'm sure like Asian people will feel the same way. Like you see more Asian people on screen. This is, this is a good, well, in well-represented roles, this is a good thing, right? I mean, we want to change that reality. We want the reality to reflect what it actually is on screen. So, yeah, for me, that's what gets me out of bed every day. I, I force myself to uh, to be creative because I want to change the way we see the world. And I guess for now, that's enough motivation. And eventually, when I think this industry reaches some sort of level of racial parity behind the scenes and on screen, then I can quit. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, I would like it to happen because I'm happy. Like, I think when we have like 50-50 gender and racial parity, then I can totally quit and I totally will because, you know, this is hard. It's, all, it's a lot of work. It is. It is. It is. Well, everyone, I just want you to follow Richard at mm -hmm. AfroFlix mm -hmm. on Instagram. Um, I only have your Instagram, but yeah. Richard Right, Richard, Richard, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on all social media platforms or if you have your website? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely do the Instagram. It'll, it'll lead you to my website, but the website mm -hmm. is, uh, you can check out richardbpierre.com. Um, yeah, hit the Instagram. You can click some links and it'll lead you out of other things. And we can social media, drop me a DM, ask me your film question. I will answer. Right. And, oh. your, and your film titled An Uninvited Guest is also streaming on CBC Gems, correct? It is CBC Gem for Canada. Uh, and uh, it'll hopefully be streaming for global audiences via different links shortly. But yeah, go to Instagram. You'll find it. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you for coming on. This has been really rewarding. <laughs> yeah, this has been a great chat. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So we're going to have you on for another two minutes after we end the show, Richard. So stick around. And everyone, thank you for joining us again for another Too Legit to QT, where we don't want you to give up, guys. Get it done out there. And where Darkoya changed her whole slogan. And become the best version of yourself possible. And for the Black people out there, do it because our ancestors couldn't. Do it because you can. Period. Yeah, but I like Be On Your Baby Come Up. That was really good. Well, it was really good. I'm becoming, but, become the best version of yourself. That's right. Okay. Well, you guys get it. You've been watching us. So anyways, thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.